Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've got a very important show for anyone uh, who is looking for their next grant to be funded or their next donor to give. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Nonprofit Coach, you know that we always start uh, with page one news and you can always find us over on Alexa by simply saying, Alexa, find the Nonprofit Coach on Tune in. Let's go find out what's on page one news. Over here on page one news, we have Ashley Gatewood, who is with CFRE International. Ashley, bring us up to date with what's going on at CFRE International. Hi, Ted. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, when COVID hit, we didn't really know what to expect, if people would be thinking of certification or not, but we are seeing a really great trend with folks having a lot of interest. I think maybe some people who've been putting it off for a couple of years have realized that now is really the time to shore up their skills and make sure they're the most attractive candidate they can be on the job market. So um, to that end, I do have a... Uh, announcement to share that for uh, in normal times when your application is approved with CFRE you have 12 months to sit for the exam but in light of everything that's going on if you submit your application on or before June 30th you will receive automatically 18 months to sit for the CFRE exam so we hope that gives uh, people some good peace of mind to keep moving forward with certification and our next uh, testing window is July 15th to September 15th. So if anyone is interested in sitting for the exam and becoming a CFRE in the upcoming test window, they will need to have their application in by July 15th. So uh, a couple weeks ahead for folks to be busy with their application, but all really to help shore up their skills and to get those four letters behind their name. 
Well, those are very important letters, CFRE. And as you know, the nonprofit coach does urge all of our listeners who can qualify to sit for the CFRE exam to please prepare yourself to sit for that exam. But how wonderful for CFRE uh, to be so thoughtful uh, to provide the extra six-month window because so many nonprofit organizations are being called upon to provide services uh, to so many people who do need uh, additional services during this global pandemic, uh, whether it be on the front lines or in a food bank or in a community service uh, uh, provision uh, for nonprofit organizations. So that extra time could really come in handy for someone who's just putting in overtime and working extra hard at their nonprofit organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. We always try to be flexible and want to be sure that we work with fundraisers who already have a very demanding job. And for many people that has only become more demanding for all the reasons you've just mentioned. What about CFRE around the world? How are all of your uh, various uh, testing sites and partners around the world holding up? Pretty well. We still have a number of sites that are open, and as uh, you know, we reopened in the U.S. and beyond. I think there will only be more availability for individuals to sit that exam. So we're again, we're super easy to work with. If anyone has concerns about booking an exam and what might happen in light of COVID, you can always contact us at our email address, succeed at csre.org, and we can get you the best, most up-to-date information for your local area. Terrific. And of course, uh, full information at CFRE.org. Ashley Gatewood, thank you so much uh, for coming here uh, on The Nonprofit Coach, as always. Uh, bring us up to date on what's going on at CFRE.org. Thank you so much. And now it's time to head on over to page two. Over here on page two, we have two experts for you, but we have a good friend of ours, Steve Nill, uh, who's here to make both of these very important introductions today. Very good. Uh, Ted, yeah. Uh, well, Ted, thank you once again for having me back. I very much enjoy um, the opportunity that I have um, when you give it to me to introduce um, people that I know and respect. Um, and I was thinking about the best way to introduce um, Linda Lysakowski and Joanne Oppelt. And of course they have the, the usual bios uh, and they're listed on your, um, on the radio pay, uh, show webpage and a quick glance shows, um, you know, Linda has, has raised over $50 million in capital campaigns. She's consulted around the world, taught around the world. Um, I, I could just go on and on. Uh, and of course, Joanne has has worked at the agency level for uh, over a quarter century, um, and really came up. I like to she wouldn't say it. She never has put it this way, but I think she came up in the school of hard knocks, where you either got very very good at what you were doing, uh, or you were out. I mean, I think she was, you know, her, in her her career. Uh, led her to becoming an executive director um, and uh, many other roles um, at many different agencies um, over the years. So all that's in their bio, and I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to just kind of repeat that stuff. What I want to talk about briefly and then turn it over to you is what I know about them that isn't going to be in their bio. 
Um, now, I've had the opportunity to work with both of these ladies independently. Um, Linda, I'm sure, what, we go back at least two decades. Um, and Joanne, I can't remember when we met. It was in the early 90s, was it not? Um, anyway, she'll, she's not on. But anyway, uh, it's been a long time. And, and as I began to work with them and over the years and compared how their sort of their minds worked, how their wheels turned, how prolific they were as writers, uh, far thinking thinkers, um, visionary thinkers, just amazing people. I realized how similar in many ways they were. And when Charity Channel launched uh, our Author Brick Road project, where we were looking to work with some very um, amazing authors, um, I thought about the two of them, and I'm told I'm the one that brought them together. I don't remember it. I have a lapse in memory about that. I must have had uh, uh, maybe a stroke of brilliance. I don't know, but apparently I brought the two of them together, and the rest was history because in in less than a year, um, they've they've mapped out um, uh, books and and courses and um and they have kept me uh, hopping as their editor uh, just long hours every day. And and so the two of them collaborating are far more than the sum of the parts, I must say, as their um, as their editor. Now, Linda had already written 19 nonprofit books, not counting almost 10 fiction books. And Joanne had written four uh, for Charity Channel Press. And all of them are published by Charity Channel Press, as, as of course, are UTED. And... Um, since we brought them together and they started collaborating, they've co-authored three books uh, and have written nine more. The three books are published, nine more are still in various stages of editing and layout and will be coming out in the next several months. The two books that um, you're going to be talking about in today's show, my understanding uh, is, are how to answer the eight questions every grant review committee asks and how to find new donors and get them to give again. So um, I'm going to, of course, leave it to you guys to flesh those, those that out, why they wrote the books. Um, they also have corresponding online trainings that they're creating around these uh, various topics that they've been writing about. And so there's a rich, I think, fertile area to, to explore there. And I think you're going to enjoy yourself, Ted. Um, I count, I count you and me as some of the top thinkers in our sector, and I'm sort of going to be amazed to listen to you talk. I'm really looking forward to it, to tell you the truth. So I'll back out and uh, well, I, sit back and listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I mean, I, I have just been really looking forward uh, to today's show with uh, both Linda and Joanne and trying to think of, like, how do I make, uh, how do I make it possible for our listeners to really sort of enjoy the, you know, the, the really the depth of the knowledge of both of these ladies. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to bring each of them uh, in uh, from the green room separately uh, and then have them uh, work together to uh, bring their, their wisdom uh, together. So uh, first I'm going to uh, bring uh, Linda Lysakowski. So Linda, uh, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. Linda, you've, you've been with us several times on uh, several different uh, topics. So uh, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. 
Thanks. It's good to be back. It seems like it's been forever, but it's good to be back on your show, Ted. Well, I know you're super busy, so our, our publisher, Diane Peach, I know uh, trying to track you down and getting time on your schedule is not not always easy, but you are here uh, today. And, and one of the first things I wanted to say is that you and I have, I guess, a few things in common, but one of the things that we have in common uh, is that we both hold the advanced CFRE designation, uh, and there are only right. 110 of us. Uh, who have that designation. So I just wanted to uh, make note of the uh, Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive, or ACFRE uh, designation, of which you uh, have one of those. Uh, Both of us are uh, published authors. But more importantly, today we're here to talk about uh, how do you get your next grant funded and how do you get your next donor uh, to give. And, And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Everything is a bit harder uh, but funding has probably never been uh, as important as it is right now. And, and Linda, uh, as you know, I, I serve as president and CEO of uh, an international donor advised fund called CAF America. Uh, and uh, and mm-hmm. we've been funding uh, uh, charities all over the world during this global pandemic. And we've also been doing some surveys. And one of the surveys uh, that we did has, has come back with some rather startling uh, results. And, sharing with us that a third of charities believe that it's entirely possible that they will have to close their doors uh, in the next 12 months. It's, it's, a, it's a tough time out there wow. uh, for nonprofit organizations. Uh, and one of the chief reasons um, is uh, because funding uh, is uncertain. Uh, funding is harder to come by. Uh, so today's show, I think, is extremely uh, important. So first question I'm going to ask, of you, and I'm going to bring Joanne out and then uh, make sure that we have an opportunity to benefit from the the wonderful wisdom that both of you are going to share with us uh, today, uh, is uh, your top uh, piece of advice for our listeners today uh, on what you must keep in mind, particularly during these difficult times during a global pandemic, if you're going to succeed. Top, Top advice. Okay, boy, that's a tough one. There's so much advice I could probably give, and I've taught a couple of webinars on fundraising during COVID-19 and after what the new normal is going to look like, and I think we're all tired of hearing that word, new normal. But what I think is the top thing to keep in mind is that your donors still want to hear from you. And most of my clients, one of them is, is was a museum that out obviously had to close their doors for a while. They're just in the process of reopening now. But donors still want to hear from you. And I think it's important that we stay in touch with our donors because we're all, mostly everybody now is working from home. And so there are still ways to keep in touch with your donors through email, through telephone. And maybe the good news about all this is that maybe we have more time now to think about staying in touch with our donors because I think they need to hear from you. They need to know what's happening with your organization. But more importantly, I think you need to listen to them and what's happening in their lives and what you can do to make it easier for them, whether it's maybe pushing back payments on a pledge that they had made because they're out of work or whatever it is that you can do. But I think we need to really get out there and empathize with our donors and build take this time to build things like a top-notch website and to improve our donor communications. And 
work on board development and our work on our case for support. These are all things we can be doing remotely and getting some better shape so that when we do open, and frankly, I was a little shocked at your statistic about a third of the organizations think they're not going to be in business. I know there's some that won't be, but it's kind of scary to think mm-hmm. that a third of people are maybe not going to exist. So I would, you know, yeah. strongly the, urge your organizations to strive for that. A big number and, and, and good advice. So Joanne Appelt, um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, you, um, uh, a very uh, successful uh, consultant uh, yourself, uh, seasoned rainmaker for a number of, uh, of charities, very distinguished uh, track record. Um, talking about that research that uh, the CAF America uh, has has done, and that research is published at CAFAmerica.org. Uh, another third of charities in, in, uh, in that report, so as I shared, a third uh, believe that there's a very real possibility that they will have to close their doors in the next 12 months. Another third of charities report that really sort of complete chaos. Uh, they, they don't know if they'll be able to keep their doors open. They may have to close. They may uh, be able to, uh, to stay uh, open, trying new things, trying uh, to, uh, to find uh, new ways of doing business. And then about a third of charities in, in our survey uh, believe that they, that they will be okay, that they will survive the global pandemic uh, their, their finances are solid. Their mission is solid. Their donors are solid. Um, that's, that's, um, that, that's a tough portrait that is being painted of the charitable sector, which we know, uh, Joanne, um, has always put mission first and has not always um, had a lot of money in the bank for a rainy day. Uh, so, Joanne, what's your best piece of advice for nonprofits to succeed uh, and be in, in that third that are pretty sure they're going to succeed uh, through this global pandemic. Uh, thank you, Ted, for having me today. I appreciate it. Um, my top piece of advice would be to go back to the basics, um, to really work on building relationships that contribute to mission fulfillment uh, in terms of, in terms of, the same things Linda said, keeping in touch with your donors, um, going out and tapping into uh, really cause-related uh, messages as opposed to money-related messages. Um, I would also add that you need to be financially astute in terms of I see over and over and over again uh, nonprofits uh, you know, raise a lot of gross revenue, uh, but then they don't watch their costs as well, and they're really, when they take into account total costs, losing money. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's those types of basic, basic things that I would go back to. Uh, you may shrink for a little while, uh, but you will be stronger in the end with a good structure and infrastructure into place. Uh, I did that when I was at uh, an executive director. I was uh, an executive director for five years, and when I came in, the organization was about two weeks away from closing, and it got worse before it got better. We didn't close, um, but our fund and and now they're thriving. Um, so I really, I really feel like 
the way that I got through that was, was by going back to the basics to build on the relationships to make sure that I was bringing in more money than I was spending and then to allocate the money so that I have some money for both A, a rainy day, as is now in COVID-19, and B, the infrastructure that we needed so that we could start to produce more and more. Mm-hmm. How many times have uh, does the advice uh, continue to go back to what we call uh, the basics? You know, there there are so many new things that that you can try and sort of cutting edge things that you can try. Uh, but when times are tough, when uh, you really need to find a path uh, back to, as, as you said, sort of uh, weeks away from possibly closing, um, it's getting back to the basics that is generally the answer for the long-term success and the road back from uh, from potential failure. Let's talk about what back to basics are. What are the basics that our listeners need to get their pencils out right now? What's on the list of things that they need to check off um, before they start thinking of new things to do? What is in the foundation? What means, uh, what do you have to have in place to make sure that your organization is built on uh, a solid rock. Linda, what's, what, do you, what are those boxes that have to be checked when we say get back to basics? Well, I think the first thing is building your infrastructure, making sure that you have a good donor software program that you can track not only just gifts and pledges that come in, but you really get to understand your donors that you can segment your donors, you know their giving history, you know their likes and their preferences, you know when they like to give, um, how they like to give. So I think building that strong infrastructure is really critical. And there's some things that I count as infrastructure that maybe people don't think of as infrastructure, but one of them is having a strong case for support. You know, we hear so much about storytelling but I think we need to go back to the basics of do we know what our story is before we can tell it? Mm-hmm. And I think creating mm-hmm. that case for support and building your board governance and getting your board really in, in shape is one of the, to me, one of the most basic parts of infrastructure because you can do a lot with limited staff. As Joanne and I both know, we both worked in organizations that had limited staff and where we had to do pretty much everything. And I really relied a lot on the support of my board members and the volunteers. So these are the things that to me are really basic key parts of infrastructure. I'm sure Joanne has more to add, but I think your your software systems, your gift acceptance policies and procedures for handling gifts and your case for support, and then that board mm-hmm. and staff support to me are the, the critical pieces mm-hmm. of infrastructure. Joanne, what, what it sounds like to me is part of uh, what, what Linda is talking about it is it getting back to basics is to make sure that you have a solid management plan in place that you're, you're not, you, even, even if, you know, things really do feel like they're, they're out of control. And back to your 
example of when you were an executive director and you came in and they're weeks away from closing. I'm, I'm sure that that was not a time that everybody, you know, was taking, you know, long martini breaks. Um, you know, this, this was sort of all hands on deck and everybody's working hard. Um, but you also have to be very professionally run. You have to show discipline. These are things that are in that toolbox of what it means to be back to basics. Help us, again, going back to what do our listeners need to know? They've got their, their pencil and paper out. What, is, um, you know, what are those boxes that have to be checked? Well, there's, there's two things that I would say. And number one, and it goes along with the case for support, is your messaging. Um, you have to know who your audience is or who your donors are, and you have to speak to your donors. So you need to know what value you're bringing to them and be able to articulate in marketing language a value proposition to them. What will you do for them that will help in terms of what their goals are? And hopefully you're talking to them about meeting mission and you're not talking to them about balancing the checkbook. So I really think that messaging is really important, especially if you're going after new donors who don't necessarily have a, a, a connection to your – well, they should. You should only go after new donors that have a connection to your organization, but who don't know who your organization is in this wide field of, of nonprofits that are out there and you're struggling to be heard about the noise, you really need a strong message to get into the community and to get people to notice you and stick to that message. The other thing that I would say is that it's not only, uh, it's not only your fundraising skills that get you over the hump in terms of bringing back to life or coming out of chaos. It's also your people skills. And one of the things that was hard for me when I was trying to get above the fray and above the chaos of people panicking and almost closing and the finances are difficult and, you know, was was basically what I call flying the plane and charting the course at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. I had to fly, fly the plane that was in trouble and going through a lot of turbulence, but I also needed to know where I was going to land at the next airport where I could refuel and, 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 and move on. Um, and managing that sort of change sometimes means changing a culture. Sometimes it means mean, changing processes and procedures, and there's a lot of resistance to change. And being able to guide people through that change to make them uh, feel okay with what you're doing because what you're doing is going to be new to the organization probably. Uh, and it, it just... It, 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 that process in, in and of itself is, is difficult, managing people's emotions, as I called it, because my board, uh, although very supportive, uh, didn't, didn't believe me <laughs> when I said, you know, the world is, is this way and not that way, because it had already been that way for them. And it's like, no, 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 we need to try something new. So, and I'm not talking individuals. I'm talking corporate in, in, the, in, the, in the group feelings. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and change even when it's staring you uh, in the face and it's, it's evident 
it's necessary uh, is nonetheless scary. Uh, and for some yeah. people, it's, it's scarier than it is for others. Um, and, and just because you're a board member uh, doesn't mean that you have more skills to surpass that, that scary stage than others. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you, it's your, as I say, it's your turn uh, it's, uh, to be up to bat. And what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to be successful uh, or are you not? Uh, we're going to uh, take a, a very quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask uh, both Linda Lysakowski and Joanna Pelt uh, a very important topic. And, and we're, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about a very important topic that, that we've discussed a few times here on, on the, the nonprofit coach. And that is that some nonprofit organizations uh, exist out of habit. Um, and are, are they actually well-managed? And are they organizations that should continue to exist? Let's talk about that when we come right back. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Does your organization have a compelling story to tell? Do you want to connect with your supporters, volunteers, and donors, but don't have the funds to launch expensive outreach campaigns? The YouTube Nonprofit Program can help. If I could give one piece of advice, it would be sign up for the YouTube Nonprofit Program. If I could give another piece of advice, it would just be to capture the story of your organization and use video to tell it, because video is the most powerful medium by far. The nonprofit program helps you use YouTube as a powerful fundraising tool for your organization. In one weekend, we managed to raise enough to feed 500,000 children at school for one day. The video also gained over half a million views and had thousands of comments. And tell stories that haven't been told. Because you guys, the YouTube community, started sharing these videos, there's been housing programs started and feeding programs started. Literally homeless people that were sleeping outside slept inside last night because of you guys. Over 10,000 nonprofits are already using YouTube's premium tools for nonprofits. Your organization can too. Learn more and apply at www.youtube.com slash nonprofits. And we're back here uh, with Linda Lysakowski and Joanna Pelt. Uh, before we left on, on break, I, I sort of just threw out there, is, is some nonprofit organizations exist sort of out of habit. Uh, they've moved beyond their mission. Their boards of directors are bored. Uh, they're no longer connected uh, to their communities. What do you do in that case? Linda? Well, I think, you know, part of the infrastructure that I talked about earlier, the one part that I didn't mention, and it perfectly answers this question is whether the organization really has a viable strategic plan and what their vision is. And I've worked with a lot of organizations helping them develop a strategic plan. And when I talk about their mission, they usually have a pretty good handle on that. They know why they exist and what they do. But then I start talking to them about their vision and I hear things like, well, our vision is to become financially stable or our vision is to have an engaged board. And that's not a vision. A vision is what you see for your community and how your organization 
fits into your community. And if you don't have a vision that's community-focused and your vision is strictly focused on building a strong organization, I have to start to ask these organizations, do you really deserve to exist? Because your vision should be something really that strives for making your community better, whether it's a family, an individual, the environment, animals, you know, whatever your your story is, has got to relate to somehow leaving the world a better place than mm-hmm. it was before your organization existed. So I think if that is not where your mission is focused, and if you don't have a street mm-hmm. strategic plan on how you're going to get there and achieve that vision, you are probably going to be one of the ones who flounder. And it it's sort of sad because I see so many people with great ideas and they really have a wonderful, powerful story to tell, but they don't seem to have any long-term vision for how they're going to accomplish what they hope to do. And they, those are the organizations that usually do falter and fall. And when you talked about them kind of existing by habit, I think they also do fundraising by habit. They get hooked on special events, and right now, I think during this COVID-19 crisis, the one thing we learned is, guess what? People aren't going to come to galas wearing a mask and, you know, socially distancing, and they've got to change the way they think about fundraising, too, because they tend to think of events, and events are the only way to do it. And they've got to start changing their mind and changing their focus to think about things that are really mission-driven. Joanne said this, and I think it's so true, that people don't give because an organization needs money. Every nonprofit needs money, (laughs) as we all know. They give because they want to really make a difference in the world. And that's what we've got to get organizations thinking Joanne, I had uh, I had a reason why I, I started off and, and took this path uh, for this particular show because one of the things that uh, you and Linda and we teased uh, at the top of uh, of the show uh, is that you folks said that you are going to share eight questions every grant review uh, committee asks, um, meaning that you are going to help our listeners today learn how to be more successful in getting grant funding. And one of the reasons that I went in this path is if you don't know yourself, if you don't know why you exist, if you, your mission is not connected to your community in a very real and authentic way, can you get funded? No. In my opinion, no. Uh, sometimes you can uh, because uh, of political concerns, if you're talking governmental grants, um, but eventually you will fail. If you do not stick to your mission, um, you will eventually lose community support because your individual donors will be confused about what you stand for. You will lose your lack of identity. Your foundation donors like to match missions. If you don't have an, if you're not sticking to your mission, they're going to be on to that. And your corporate donors. A um, little bit different, but they like to see strong corporate identities, and they like to see organizations with strong brands. And if you're not sticking to your mission, you're not going to have that. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the eight questions every grant review committee is going to ask, and how do I answer those? 
Well, one of the questions, and this goes back to what Linda is saying, is what need are you meeting? You're not meeting a financial need. You are meeting a community need. Um, and I see a lot of, uh, as, a, as a previous grants reviewer, I've seen a lot of grants talk about the need in terms of a new program or the need in terms of uh, lack of funding, and, and, and it's not. It's the community need. Um, then they need to talk about how they operate and how they meet that need, and, and, and that's the operations, and most, most nonprofits are pretty good about that because there's so many resources in the organization devoted to program operations. It's usually the biggest chunk of, out, of a budget allocation that people have uh, because it takes up so much to do. Uh, then you want to talk about, you know, how much is it going to cost, and you need to show community support in your budget. Uh, you also need to talk about uh, goals and outcomes and not, not necessarily measuring your process when you're evaluating the process, but measuring how well you're meeting in the short term your outcomes and in the long term your goals. Uh, one of the questions that I always ask or always suggest that people answer is, why are you uniquely qualified to do what you say you can do? To really get into your specific value proposition to that funder of why you're the best out there among the hundreds of proposals that they're going to receive this year. Why should they fund you? And organizations with a strong identity, organizations that are buttoned up in terms of having a strategic plan, as Linda pointed out, in terms of having a development plan, in terms of having um, a, some plan for sustainability, even if they don't have the money in the bank um, at that moment in time, but have a plan for it, are the ones that are going to get the grant funding. Mm-hmm. But, Joanne, isn't it enough to show that I need the money? No. It is not. Everybody needs the money. There's there's 1.5 million nonprofits in the U.S. and they're all going out. Most of them anyway are going after grants. And with that kind of competition, um, usually for federal grants you have to be in the top one percent. For foundation grants, you have to be depending on how big the foundation is. You have to be anywhere between the top 20 percent to five percent. Everybody needs money. You must be meeting a community need, and you must be somehow separate yourself as being uniquely qualified to meet that community need. Mm-hmm. Foundations, and if, foundations and have missions. Part of that is just being self-aware, right? Where do you fit? What, what need do you meet? And if, if you're not able to measure your success or measure what you're able to, to accomplish, then you can't tell your own story. You, you don't know right. um, why you exist and what you are capable of doing. Right. And that's what a good case for support does, is that it's a guiding document for any kind of ask that you're going to make, be it individual, corporate, or foundation. But it should all be consistent throughout so that you have that one strong message, that one strong identity that's coming through that anybody who interacts with you knows exactly what you do and exactly why you do it. And you've told them why it is good for them to be involved with you. And that's including foundations. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think even even maybe more so for foundations, right? Because the wonderful thing about foundations is that they're in the business of giving away money, but they also have yeah. a process through through which they are going to ask the right questions, and they've seen it all before. So they know what filters to put your proposal through. They know if you are measuring the right things and coming out with the right answers. So the, the, the wonderful thing about getting funded uh, by a foundation uh, is that you are being told that you are measuring the right things and that you are very likely well-managed. Yes. Exactly. And one thing I want to point out, too, is oftentimes I see, especially in nonprofits who have lost their way in terms of mission and or is what I call shotgunning, writing the same grant, just slapping on the different contact information and going after whoever gives away money. No, 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 no. Foundations have missions that they have to meet. They're legally obligated to meet their own missions. And what you're saying to a foundation is, I, want to, I have the car to get you where you want to go, and this is why my car is the best vehicle that you can hop into. Hop in with me and let's get there together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And tell that story. So, so Linda, um, so I have a, a, a new donor. I have someone uh, who, who joined me, but so often new donors don't give again. Why? Right. Well, I think there's a, a lot of reasons why. And years ago, Judith Nichols did a lot of research on this, and I've always relied on her wisdom on this. And, and she said that, you know, sometimes people think, well, yeah, we lost donors, they died or they moved away. And only about 4 or 5% of the donors who stopped giving is because they died or moved away. And the majority of them simply think that your organization doesn't care about you or they find some other organization that that they think is doing a better job. And the reason they think that the organization doesn't care about them is how often do we contact our donors when we're not asking for money? And sadly, the answer is very little. Um, not if very you're often, familiar right. with the, right, the Fundraising Effectiveness Project that AFP and the Urban Institute has initiated proved this over and over again, that donor retention is terrible because we just don't treat our donors very nicely. And how often do you actually get a phone call from an organization just simply thanking you for the gift. I think I've gotten one in my lifetime of giving. And I was so impressed that I gave them more money the next time they called. And I think a lot of times this is, you know, we we give to organizations and we get a postcard or a standard IRS letter saying thank you for your gift and blah, 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 all the IRS regulations that have to be on those letters. But they don't tell you what they did with your money, that your $50 or $100 or whatever it was really made a difference. And that's why I think we really need to improve our communication with donors. And we need to um, learn to cultivate donors. Sometimes a $25 or $50 donor 
and I've heard this over and over again, real life stories from clients of mine that they treated that donor well, and when the donor died, they got a million and a half dollar bequest or something, and it's they've never given more than fifty dollars in their lifetime. But it's because they felt the organization really cared about them, and they let them know that their money was making a difference. I give to some organizations. Um, one of them is an organization that sponsors children in Africa, and I get letters from these students who write to me how they're doing in school, and I know that my gift is making a difference because they're telling me I'm hearing from the students themselves, and those are the kind of things that we need to do more of. We need to maintain those relationships. and. Like I said before, right now, when you can't get out and meet donors face-to-face and you can't be doing events, spend your time now thinking, how can we better recognize our donors and thank them and let them know that their money is making a difference? Because nobody wants to give to a sinking ship. Nobody wants to give if they don't know where their money is going and they feel like it's just going into a black hole somewhere. They want to give because they know they're really changing the life of a person. Um, and what I give to these children isn't a whole lot of money. It's not what I would consider a major gift. But I can give them $35 a month, and I know that without that $35, they probably wouldn't be able to go to school and buy books and do everything else and buy a pair of shoes to even walk through the jungle to get to school So those are the kind of things that make me keep giving to organizations when I know that I'm really making some kind of a difference, even if my gift is a small one, but those small gifts become larger the more donors feel appreciated. Mm -hmm. So Linda and Joanne, so we're we're talking about uh, the basics our listeners are are thinking, you know, well, you know, that's not the new sexy stuff that I can talk to my board about. You know, that that's kind of, you know, that's really boring stuff. That doesn't make me sound <laughs> like, you know, sort of the cutting edge fundraiser that everybody thinks I ought to be. How do I make the case that this is, you know, a, a you know, 2020 kind of fundraiser? One of the things that well, I always do, and I'll let Joanne jump in too, but one of the things that I always do when I'm training boards is I ask them to to really think about their own situations. And I ask them, you know, who have you made a gift to lately? And how did you feel after you made that gift? How were you thanked and recognized? And did it make a difference in whether you decided to keep giving to that organization? I ask them to think about it, how it relates to them personally. And I think that's one way to get boards to think about, well, gosh, what I like as a donor is probably what other people are going to like as a donor. So I'm going to let Joanne jump in because I think she has something to add to this too. Well, I I was thinking in terms of uh, both in terms of meeting board expectations as an executive director or a development director if you're involved with the boards um, and also the financial ramifications. What I would do is, is go back to the basic principles. They're the same. The trappings or the methods of how you do it may be different and may be updated in the technology and all of that, but the principles are basically the same. 
And you can get a lot of data from places like the Fundraising Effectiveness Project and the BlackBot Institute and, and, and places like that, that that can support, that have objective data that can support your argument for let's get back to the basics. Um, you could also, in terms of money, run the numbers. Which one is making you the most net income? net after you take into account total costs including labor is that special event really making you money if you're if you're like most nonprofits it's not um, how much money how much return on investment are you really getting for those grants and and is it mm-hmm. is it are, do you need to subsidize them and, and going back and running the numbers and and seeing where your your greatest net income is seeing where your most volunteers are giving and seeing where your most uh, your greatest return on investment is for the resources that you have to put in so that when you're making an overall fundraising program and you're saying, yes, we need this event because we're a suicide prevention agency and it's suicide prevention month, you you say, but it's not going to make me money. It's a fundraising event, and I'm going to subsidize that through and pick pick whatever else you can do. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a matter of of also having a balanced fundraising program, right? I mean, it's yes. not, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I once had uh, I once had uh, a board president say, you know, looking at this uh, ROI uh, 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 report, it's very clear we will now only do planned giving. <laughs> well, that's a. That's another problem in terms of you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, and that that goes back to an investment principle. Diversify, diversify, diversify. In the same way that you want to diversify your personal investments, you also want to diversify your revenue streams. So the answer is not we need to be giving. That's not the answer. I think that that particular area is really interesting because obviously a planned giver isn't going to be a repeat donor. <laughs> there are ones that done shot. And yes, it is a great return on investment, but you have to do things to keep cultivating new donors that want to make a plan gift. Okay. And, 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 how, and how, do you, how do you build that kind of rich relationship that gets someone to the point where, you know, they're willing to consider that kind of legacy life uh, engagement uh, that generally um, is the result of, of of an estate gift of that sort. Now, certainly you can find the, the rare uh, instance where there appears to be no prior relationship, but those are so mm-hmm. rare and so few that you're certainly not going to stake the claim of your fundraising program on that kind of gift. Right, very rare. And one of the books in our series that's going to be coming up is talking about cultivating donors. And I'm a firm believer, and I've always said this, it usually brings a chuckle, but I've always said, you know, I think there's a reason that human beings and even most animals were created with two ears and one mouth. And I think it's because we're supposed to spend at least twice as much of our time with the donor listening to the donor than we are about talking about our organization. Because the big best way to build relationships is to listen to the other donor. It's like a, a relationship between a couple. You know, the first time you went out on a date, you didn't ask a person to marry you probably. Maybe there's a few exceptions. But mostly it's getting to know a person, getting to listen to them and and 
the people who seem to be um, the best at relationship building are those who listen to what the other person has to say, and they're they're good listeners. They're not always talking about themselves. And nonprofits, unfortunately, spend way too much time talking about how wonderful they are and they're the best organization. And yes, you do have to, you know, feel strong and confident in your organization. But how many times do you sit down with your donors and ask what their philanthropic objectives are and why they give Mm -hmm. and what is it that they're passionate about? And that's the way to build a relationship with a donor that's going to give you a planned gift. But you can't just focus all your energy on planned giving because you've got to have a pool of donors to start with. I would add to that. I would add. I would add to that, too, that not only do you need to listen to your donors and um, uh, spend more time listening and talking, you also need to engage your donors in things other than fundraising. And that Mm -hmm. means um, getting them involved in your cause or asking them a survey question or getting them to like you on Facebook or Whatever else it is that you are doing to show broad community support, if they're invested in your mission and your mission is not stated as needing money but stated as meeting a community need, they're going to be interested in other things they can do to meet that community need. And they want to be involved. They've already shown you that. Yes. is a great way, too. Yeah. Well, uh, Linda and Joanne, uh, we only have uh, about five, six minutes left. And so I want to make sure that uh, both of you have an opportunity to sort of pull all of these thoughts together. Uh, and very importantly, make sure that my guests know how they can reach you. Uh, so why don't we go in uh, reverse order? And uh, Joanne, you go first. Uh, what I would say is use the technology that's available Uh, to be the latest and greatest, but go back to the basics in terms of structuring a fundraising program so that you do build reserves, that you do build infrastructure, so that you do have the resources when the time comes to be the latest and greatest. You can actually be the latest and greatest. The other thing that I would add is um, uh, engage your donors, listen to your donors, talk about your donors, Talk about them in terms of their needs and your community needs that you're meeting. Be mission-related. Develop a relationship that focuses on meeting mission. Uh, If people want to get a hold of me, they can get a hold of me at www.joanneoppelt.com or they can uh, get me uh, through email at joanne at joanneoppelt.com. Thank you so much. And, and Linda, tell us a, a little bit about the series that you folks are working on. Uh, wrap things up and make sure that uh, everyone knows how they can reach you. Okay. Well, I'm really excited. And, and one of the things that Steve mentioned in his introduction is that he did bring Joanne and I together. We've both been authors with the Charity Channel. And it was kind of scary because I felt like I found a sister from another mother we <laughs> wrote so much alike and thought so much alike, it was almost scary. Um, So we decided to team up on this series of books. Um, There's going to be 12 of them in in the series, but they're all written 
for the busy nonprofit executives and development people, they can be read probably over a lunch hour or in a couple sittings maybe. But we focused on these books because we knew that people are busy and they don't have a lot of spare time. And in addition to the books, we both are doing some free online training and we have a series of courses that people can attend. And one of the things that I've urged people while they are working at home, um, take advantage of some of the online learning that's available. There's a ton of it available through a multitude of sources. But I would encourage you certainly to um, contact Joanne or myself. And although my last name is hard to spell, my email address is linda at lindalizakowski.com. So you can look that up. And my website is actually going to be changing because it's focusing more on my courses. Right now it's lindalizakowski.com, but very shortly it's going to be lindalizakowskicourses.com where you'll be able to take advantage of all the courses that I have to offer. And I've been encouraging people to spend this time learning more about the craft of fundraising and nonprofit management so they're better prepared post-COVID-19 to deal with the new normal. So take advantage of this time to, to study and read and take courses and do whatever you can do to improve your skills in areas that you might be weak in. Linda Lysakowski and Joanna Pelt, thank you so much for being my guests here today on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.